few things that speak to the promise of a new day as a morning in the boundary waters. Mist rising, throwing a loon call, splashes in the water from some creature you can't see. It's absolutely magical. Welcome to Big Red Canoe, the podcast from Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, where we introduce you to captivating people and intriguing stories from America's treasured wilderness. I'm Dave Meyer. Grab a paddle and hop on in. Today, we're fortunate to have our own Pete Marshall, our communications director for Friends of the Boundary Waters, with us to talk about tips for your Boundary Waters trips this summer. And Pete's canoed more than 8,000 miles through remote regions of Canada and put on plenty of miles in his backyard BWCAW. He's also written for a number of publications and has produced a documentary film for Twin Cities Public Television. So, Pete, good to have you on the show and, and sharing your tips. And I'm curious, how long have you been going to the Boundary Waters and, and how did you get started with it? I've been canoeing since I was 16. I got started through a program called Les Voyagers based out of St. Cloud, Minnesota. And where I think a common course is people start off in the Boundary Waters and then maybe take a trip up to Quetico and then go further north. I started out in central Manitoba, so probably a few thousand miles north of, maybe a thousand miles north of the Boundary Waters on a four-week canoe trip, and it was a complete trial by fire. The first half, I hated it. I wanted to go home. It was very wet, very hard, very buggy, and I was a mopey 16-year-old. But the second half of the trip, something clicked, and I got hooked into canoeing. And after that, I did another month-long trip in Nunavut, the central Arctic, so went even further north into the tundra. And then after that, I did a series of personal trips, each one a little bit longer than the other one, and it wasn't until 2007 that I went to the Boundary Waters for the first time. And what I found there was, you know, an echo of the Canadian wilderness that I had fallen in love with, your Precambrian shield, those rocky granite shorelines, the big white pines, birch groves. You know, it's just a wonderful water, watery wilderness. And I've been going back quite regularly ever since. And I'm fortunate enough to have a job where I get to both promote the Boundary Waters, talk to a lot of people who love the Boundary Waters, and protect this gem of a wilderness we have in northern Minnesota. Yeah, and we at Friends of the Boundary Waters put a lot of suggestions about recreation on our website that people can browse canoe routes, gear, suggestions for trips, trip planning, how to get permits. So you've shared these 20-some tips about how to do a Boundary Waters trip, and, and I wanted to just dig into some of those with you today and kind of get into kind of what's behind them, and hopefully those can help other people with their trips that they have coming up. So one thing I noticed on your list of tricks is just kind of right off the bat when you're planning a trip that, that you say it's important to decide what kind of trip you want to do. And can you tell us some more about how that is important? Yeah. So first, I also should point out that these 25 tips and tricks, they're not geared towards the beginner or for the advanced paddler. They're kind of somewhere in the middle. Hopefully some insights that can help improve your canoe experience. 
And yeah, what you asked me about planning the trip and being intentional about what kind of trip you want to take, that kind of speaks to a larger issue of crew dynamics. And there's a lot of different types of trips you can have in the boundary waters. And if you're going with a crew of six, seven other people, maybe even three or four other people, you might have different ideas of what you want to do in the boundary waters. So you might have someone who's like, well, let's just paddle half a day, find camp, stay there for three nights and fish. You might have another person who's like, I just want to make miles. I want to see as much country as I can. And I want to end sore, tired, and absolutely refreshed. That's kind of how I like to do it. And you might have someone who, I don't know, doesn't want to portage very much. There's many variations on that. So before you really go out, you should talk with everyone and say, you know, what do you want to get out of this trip? And what do you envision each day to look like? And that will help plan your route, plan your menu, plan your the gear that you bring, and will go a long ways to make sure everyone has a fulfilling trip. Yeah, that's that's a great suggestion, especially too if you've got kind of some first timers on the on the trip, or if you you yourself are a first timer, it's it's good to just kind of have a, have a really good idea right up front. I know for me now we have a couple of kids that are elementary school age, age seven and ten, and so a lot of times you know we're not going to go quite as far as. What I used to do where we're doing a, a bunch of miles a day and, and changing campsites every single day. And so if we're not going in as far, you might bring a couple more luxury items and even bring some heavy things that you just got to get across that one portage. Right. And then then you can have that and then the kids are happy too. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can bring that cooler. So you're planning your trip and then you have a suggestion here in terms of gear and getting going to engage an outfitter. If, if need be, you know, outfitters can be a really great resource up there and can kind of help maybe bridge the gap in what kind of gear that you have. If you have no gear or even just some gear or not the right gear, you can have an outfitter to help you get started and help you out. Yeah, I think outfitters are an enormous resource that I really urge people to utilize, both for the reasons you said, right? If you forget your sleeping bag, they'll have a sleeping bag that you can rent. You don't have a canoe, you can pick many varieties of canoes from them. You can try out new canoes. And they also have on the ground knowledge, right? So they know what conditions are like, what water levels are like. I mean, there's no one else who has the intimate, kind of at the moment knowledge of what's going on in the boundary waters of where you're going than an outfitter because they, they're, they're living and breathing it every day. So, for instance, at the time of recording, Fireband just went into effect for the Boundary Waters. That's that you probably want a little more information about that. It's getting really dry up there. You can learn about that in news articles, but if you really want the details, you know it's best to talk to an outfitter and you know use use an outfitter. They it's it's important to patronize them because they're really helping the wilderness economy thrive up there and making the Boundary Waters accessible to a lot of people. Absolutely. They're a great resource. And, and I know like for me with my changing dynamic and family or different people that we add on or subtract at the last minute, you know, you might not quite have enough paddlers for the canoes that you have. So you can possibly rent a three person canoe or last year I rented a solo canoe and yeah. I had a blast and it made it a lot of fun and kind of switched things up from from our regular trips. So Let's walk through a trip here. You know, once you've kind of decided what kind of trip you're going to have, you're getting to the entry point and you're looking out on the lake and you are getting into the water. 
what kind of suggestions do you have about how to um, paddle portage and get to that campsite yeah so first let's talk paddling i don't want to be harsh but i have seen a lot of bad paddling in the boundary waters like shockingly bad paddling so you can write me off as an elitist snob all you want but it's it's unfortunately true the first first thing that you just can't do is paddle on both sides like that's just just strike that from your mind that you're going to be paddling on both sides maybe if you're doing some whitewater canoeing or canoe racing it's it's acceptable but not in the boundary waters not with tripping canoes it's it's the equivalent, I say, of slowing down while you merge onto the onto the interstate. It off balances you. It really affects how you track and you go straight. And these canoes are designed to optimally go forward when people are paddling on opposite sides. So that's my that that's the first bit of advice I have because I do see a lot of people paddling on both sides. I don't think I'm just a cranky middle-aged man either. <laughs> so maybe you are a little bit of a paddle snob, but you've learned a few things over your over your time and but it also helps to try to coordinate the paddle at the same time as the other person, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's like a nice symmetry to it. You know, there's ideally if you're both catching pulling the paddle through the water and recovering at the same time you know that's 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 something to to aim for that again that that helps track the boat and keep it going going straight makes it easier to throw in those j strokes and those correctional strokes and, you know i should say too that my paddling is constantly improving a few years ago i started going to these canoe racing events and practices and i really realized then that i was also a very very bad paddler you hang around with canoe racers who spend hours perfecting their stroke and you realize how (laughs) sloppy you are in many ways and from that I, i one of the big lessons i learned that i tell people is you know we tend to think that canoe paddling is a matter of pulling your paddle through the water and that is not correct you the idea is that you're pushing down on your paddle so when you reach out to plant your paddle you want it to be at an angle where it's you know it's not absolutely parallel but it's flatter this is why bent shaft paddles are bent because then you have more of a surface that you're pushing down on the water with and you're pushing down on the water this affects your your arm position torso rotation and you're pushing down the water all all the way until your hips and after that is kind of just excess right you're not really getting a lot of power but that's your power phase and there's lots of videos online you can google this but i would just recommend keeping that in mind that you're pushing down on your paddle and that is for me has been the most significant increase to my paddle strength and efficiency so not even not just going faster but not taking nearly as much energy to go faster that makes sense. I approach it more from kind of a rather than a efficiency and 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 standpoint and power standpoint. I'm just thinking about almost zen when you kind of get into okay, I know these couple things that I can be doing and just kind of getting little satisfaction about just focusing and just syncing up with that other person, watching the drips from your paddle as you bring it around and, and try to remain as in sync as possible and just the satisfaction of of kind of doing it 
efficiently and and kind of in in proper form it kind of gets you i think into the mood for for that boundary waters experience yeah there's that there's that real beautiful flow that can happen so you're efficiently paddling down the lake and you're getting to your first portage what do you have to say about portaging yeah and i should start off by saying i mean i mean these tips aren't these tips aren't universal right i i have my own prejudice and views on how i like to do canoe trips so people are are more than welcome to disagree with me and still have a fantastic trip in the boundary waters and maybe even a better trip than i'm having so so just want to make that disclaimer off the bat but i really aim to get through the porters trails in one carry one there's like a satisfaction of knowing that you packed right and that you're able to do it because the beauty and the downside of a canoe trip is you can carry a lot you might have to take three trips on a portage to get through it but you can I mean, you can bring a lot. Literally, you can bring a sink these days. Uh, so so I, I pack in a way that allows me to get through the Porter's Trail once. This usually involves, you know, one pack that's either small and full of heavier gear that I can wear while portaging a canoe or a larger pack full of lighter gear like jackets, sleeping bags, etc. And then sometimes it might mean another person has to double up on the portage packs it also means that you got to be careful about just strewing stuff all over your canoe which definitely can happen especially during a long day you know things just get loose but being able to get through the portage in one carry just it just saves a lot of time and look i'm into you know i'm i'm, I'm a middle-aged man who's into endurance sports but I don't want to have to portage any more than I have to. I still abide by the late, great Bill Mason's immortal lines that portaging is like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. It's fun once you're done with it. <laughs> I'm not afraid to take a little, a little extra portage, you know, just, uh, just for those, those extra items or, uh, you know, if people are still portaging, if you're the first one done going back to get the last bag, you're not losing that much time if, if everybody's not doubling up. So right. if you kind of, you know, if you get a little squishy on that last bag, I think that's okay. Yeah. And obviously, you know, if you're doing a trip with kids, good luck getting through yeah. one portage. <laughs> Someday they'll learn to carry stuff, right. and, and they take great pride in it, and then they'll fall on their back like a turtle, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Another thing, when I first was starting with my dad, we would always have a, a small sack for lunch and things like that. So I like your idea of having a, a lighter bag, but also you suggest having a thwart bag, which I just added to my canoeing equipment last year, and I'm still getting a little bit used to it, but can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, thwart bag is basically any kind of small bag, preferably waterproof, that is, you know, the size of a purse, a reasonably sized purse, not one of those, you know, fashionable ones from 10 years ago that were like, could carry three gallons of stuff. And you put items that you frequently use during the day in it, such as sunscreen, lip balm, compass, bug dope, bug net maybe a snack or two, things things that you'll want at hand that you'll frequently need to reapply or use, etc. And that's, that just is remarkably convenient. So instead of having to open up your pack, and you know, canoe packs get pretty big, and pulling things out, digging through it for, you know, lip gloss, because you have it 
you have it right in front of you. So these just clip onto your thwart, you know, not just a, not just a clever name there. And you're able to access things really easily. And it's, uh, it, it's really convenient that way. And, you know, sometimes I think if you're in groups of two to four, you can just pack your lunch in those too. And that way you don't have to dig through a food pack to get your lunch out. So, you know, essentially I always have kind of a goal of keeping my canoe packs closed during the day and keeping what I need in a small bag or a thwart bag. You, you, you kind of leave it attached to the canoe then too, when you pick yeah. up the canoe and, and, and portage it, it just kind of stays I, on there. I don't, I take it off, clip it onto a bag just cause oh, there you, go. you know, canoes are so they're balanced just right. Right. And if you add, you know, three grams to the front, they tend to just crash. <laughs> the, the bow will crash in front of you. Yeah. For a number of years, we tried to shove our paddles into the canoe to kind of carry them that way. So the, the, you didn't need to have somebody carrying the paddles and then it just threw the balance all off. Oh, and right. you were always like nose diving the front of the canoe right, on the portage right. into a rock. And that was no fun. But some of my other, one other item that I love to have in the Thorpe bag at hand is binoculars uh-huh, because yeah. then, you know, you sneak up on a loon or you come around in a quarter, there's a moose or a good bird and uh, you, you got them right there at hand. You can kind of check that out. And then when you're done, you can kind of put them back and, and you don't have to have them, you know, hanging around your neck or hanging out over the water when you're, when you're paddling, getting in the way. So can you talk a little about timing as you're, as you're heading into a lake or heading out for the day? Yeah. So first and foremost, I mean, there are a few things that can compare to early summer morning in the boundary waters. It is that is that is peak time. The bugs tend to be there tend to be less bugs early in the morning. Oftentimes you have the mist rising and then you have what the the photographers refer to as that magic hour where you have that very soft glow coming from a rising sun. Throw in a loon call, some splashes in the water from some creature you can't see, and it's just it's absolutely magical few things are as reviving and speak to the promise of a new day as a morning in the boundary waters. So beyond that kind of waxing philosophically there, there's also just a practical reason is that the boundary waters, you know, it's rightfully popular and you can often get in a situation in the summertime where you're competing for campsites or you're racing for campsites. And with that in mind, you still want to have a full day on the water. So if you get started early, enjoy that early morning, have some coffee, maybe journal or write a bit. Everyone gets up, eat breakfast. And if you're on the water, even as early as like eight o'clock, I mean, you've already had about three hours of sunlight by that time, uh, you'll have plenty of time to enjoy the day. And, you know, by late afternoon, maybe two or three o'clock, start looking for a campsite and not get stuck in a situation where you're looking for a campsite and it's getting dark and you're starting to worry that you might not find one. So that's why I recommend people get started early. There's practical and, you know, kind of romantic reasons behind that. Yeah, you've got to be get, getting going to, you don't want to be have the sun setting and being looking for the campsite. I've been in that that situation a few, uh-huh. <laughs> few times and it's a little nerve wracking yep. and you just want to be a little more chill, hopefully, on your Boundary Waters trip than I hope we I hope we can find one. Right, the bugs are getting it coming out. So you found your campsite then and you're with your group. And so what's your, what's your first step there? I, on your list here, you've got 
clean camp, clean conscience, keep <laughs> things tidy around camp. And that almost starts with setup, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like to frame it in a very puritanical term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because if any of you listening ever stop by the friend's office and come to say hi to me in my office, you'll probably be horrified because it is a disaster. Just things are everywhere. And I'm not going to say that there's a system to it. It's just, it's just a mess. But when I camp, things are clean and tidy as they can be. So, you know, storing things in your vestibule, storing, storing items underneath the canoe, packing things away in the pack, etc., is a really good practice to keep because, one, it's just less of a chance that you're going to lose something. And, one, you don't want to lose things. And, two, you don't want to leave your stuff for other campers to find, right? We want to keep the boundary waters as clean as possible. And it also is a way to, keeping a clean camp is a way to deter animals. You know, just not leaving food out, not leaving crumbs out, washing the dishes when they need to be washed, etc. Less likely that you're going to have a furry visitor come into your camp. So I'm a big proponent of keeping clean camp just so you don't lose things. And it kind of, kind of contributes, I think, to that nice orderliness and sense of well-being that all things are in its right place when you're out in the boundary waters. I, I agree. It's it, and it's really tempting to kind of get up there and just roll out of the roll out of the canoe and start fishing right away, or kind of exploring a little bit, especially with kids. But I, I think that for me, kind of getting things ready and set up first thing is really important. And also, we have a video on our on our website and on our YouTube called "How to Bombproof Your Campsite," and I think that that's a, a good philosophy for even when you're getting started with your camp, just to kind of get things set up. So get a tarp up, so that if a storm comes up right away, you got a place to to duck under. You know, get your get your water situated, and get maybe even find find that spot for the bear hang right away if you hang your food. Just to have things in order and then also be able to kind of dive into the tent and not have all your stuff out in the rain if if things go south with the weather quickly which can really happen that's a good that's a good point weather is a thing in the boundary waters to say the least and yeah getting getting caught in a storm with clothes strewn all over camp and you know empty empty bags etc is not good Yep, for the critters and for the weather. And then, then you say get a bug tarp. That's not something I've done before. But usually I'm going in September. Labor Day is a good time, you know, so there are fewer bugs at that time. But I've been up there sometimes where it is, they are just brutal. And so I'm listening. Do you usually travel with a bug tarp? Yeah, so a bug tarp is something that I bring that, that is kind of a carryover from far north trips. So up in the Arctic, in the far north, especially, you know, like northeastern Canada and Labrador and whatnot, the, the bugs are just ferocious, whole nother level, like clouds of black flies. And uh, people regularly bring up bug tarps so they can eat and have a little bit of an escape from, from the bugs because they're so bad. The bugs are not as bad in the boundary waters, which some people may find hard to believe, but... <laughs> You go early season, they're still bad. And, you know, if you go with kids, you know, I have a six-year-old and I went with him and my niece last year and they're not used to mosquitoes and the bugs were, the bugs were out and they just, they, they swelled up bad. 
So a bug tarp is a really nice way to enjoy the outdoors, even if it's buggy, so you don't have to retreat to your tents. And highly recommend them. Cook's Custom Sewing makes, makes a great one, and Nemo Equipment also makes one. All right, we're gonna take a short break here, and we'll be right back with more tips and tricks, including some cooking tips and fun ideas to put a new spin on your BWCA trips. With over 1,200 lakes and hundreds of miles of trails, it's no wonder that people spend a lifetime exploring the Boundary Waters. With so many possibilities, it can be daunting to figure out where to go. Whether you seek adventure, solitude, or want to reconnect with others, Friends of the Boundary Waters has extensive online resources to help you get the most out of your Boundary Waters experience. Visit www.friends-bwca.org slash explore for more information. Okay, we're back with Friends of the Boundary Waters' own Pete Marshall. He's written a guide on tips for a better Boundary Waters trip, and you can read all 25 tips along with videos and illustrations on our blog at friends-bwca.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss any BWCA news or opportunities to connect with the Boundary Waters. So once you got your camp set up, it might be time to cook some dinner. So we've got a few food suggestions here on your list. One actually is about getting the fire started. Dryer lint. I don't know where I learned about this, but you just, you know, over a few weeks before you leave, just start collecting the dryer lint from the filter on your drying machine and put that in like an Altoids container or, I don't know, an old film roll, which I don't think they make anymore, so probably not that. But, you know, some small little container, pack it down real tight, and it is just, it is highly flammable. That's a, a nice little fire starter to bring. Obviously, birch bark, which, of course, don't peel from a live tree, but if you find on the ground, is a superb fire starter. But, yeah, dryer lint's a nice little nice little thing to bring with you. And then get that fire started. Do you cook over a fire at all if you can? Not now, because now, like you said, as, as the time of recording, all of a sudden, no fires in the boundary water. So you have to be prepared to use a stove. Do you cook over the fire, or do you always use a stove? I tend to cook over a fire, and... What I do though is I, I bring what's called a ember light stove, which is basically just four sheets of metal that click together and form a square that's about, I don't know, four or five inches tall. And you build a fire within that using twigs because it can't really handle much more than twigs. And you can you can boil your water, cook, cook your food that way. It's by far the lightest weight stove you can bring it weighs a few ounces there's no fuel involved and because a lot of campsites get picked over for firewood quite quickly in the boundary waters all you all you really need is twigs mm. so i i tend to use that when, when i'm going now if i'm in a group of more than two people i probably want something a little different since you know it's a small stove small boiling capacity and then and then i'll probably bring a stove just for backup but i like to I like to try to camp or cook on a fire because that's, you know, that's kind of part of the tradition of being out there in the Boundary Waters. Yes, but we should note that while a fire ban is in effect, you can only use fuel stoves right. in, the, in the Boundary Waters. So kind of pay attention to what the fire situation is during your trips. 
I've also, as a handy thing for a stove, I've been up there in so much rain before that my lighter got wet, Ooh. but I had a little flint and steel, so I was able uh-huh. to light a stove off the flint and steel. So when it's when it's dinner time, are you of the feeling that you need to always eat dehydrated meals and save weight, or what are your, some of your suggestions around cooking? Yeah, that and this kind of goes back to that original point of knowing what kind of trip you want to take, right? If you want to go fast and see a lot of country and you're going to be portaging a lot, you know, bring bring dehydrated food. That doesn't mean you have to buy the $15 per meal mountain house food. You know, you can bring pasta dehydrated sauce, pretty readily available. But in recent years, you know, I've become more aware of, you know, just there's more possibilities than dehydrated food. And you can bring a lot of perishable foods into the boundary waters with you especially if you're going to use them i'd say you know within about 24 hours of departure so root vegetables meant that that'll last week or two or you can have 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 fresh hash browns for breakfast or i don't know a rutabaga onion onion of course garlic yeah key key for cooking up some of that those fish that you catch up there you know people bring eggs i had a friend who was a, a guide up in alaska and he would always fill up a Nalgene with about a dozen eggs for his crew and then first morning surprise them all with fresh omelets. So you break the eggs up in the Nalgene first and then use them the next morning. You can you can also bring meats of various kinds if, again, use them within about 24 hours. Cheese, if it's vacuum sealed, you know, that'll stay for a couple weeks without refrigeration. We do have a I think it's pretty safe to say that Americans probably over-refrigerate food. Don't think there's like a health problem to that, but we do have, and I have this mentality too, that, you know, like eggs should not be left out, but you go to Europe and the eggs are just out for weeks and yep. they eat them, which is crazy to me. But like I said, hey, I'm an American, product of my culture, <laughs> but it is possible to eat them without uh, refrigeration. And people bring bagged salads. Yeah, so there's lots of... I guess, perishable foods you can bring with you. And you don't necessarily have to bring, you know, a cooler full of dried ice. And so I encourage people to experiment with that. And we've well, got a lake right there. You could actually cool something in the lake, you know, kind of put your cooler, you know, an inch deep in water if you have a good rock and, and, and tie it to something so it doesn't flow, float away or, yeah. or your Nalgene bottle full of eggs if you're really worried about it. But I agree with you. I think it's usually good to go for, for a few days over the right. length, of, length of your trip. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Some of, some of the best food that I ever had in the Boundary Waters was impromptu. We had a little bit of jalapeno, a little bit of cherry tomatoes I find travel well yeah. versus a big tomato, which is going to get smushed. Sure, right. But little cherry tomatoes inside a little Tupperware, they can they can kind of weather some bumping around. And then caught a fish, and we had a few tortillas lying around and ended up having fish tacos that I still think about to this day just with some of those fresh yeah little things that you could just throw in to just kind of make make that meal pop a little bit. Yeah, that's those are good ideas. Some of the things that that definitely kind of also can travel well, peanut butter is is one thing you suggest. What are the, what are some of the quick five uses that you would have for peanut butter? Yeah, peanut butter goes great on everything at home and it goes great on everything in the boundary waters. Our lawyers would want me to note that this is not advice if you have a peanut allergy, however. <laughs> then completely disregard everything I'm saying. But one, 
peanut butter is very high calories, right? It's like almost 200 calories, or almost 100 calories a tablespoon. So that's great when you're working hard and you're out, out in the wilderness and you need a little, little bump and it's delicious and just adds a creamy flavor to things. So starting, in the brec- start, starting off with breakfast, one of the tips I have, have on there is to use 10 or 12 grain cereal just because it's so compact and it really sticks with you. And you throw in, you know, one or two spoonfuls of peanut butter, then it's just creamy goodness. The same thing goes at lunch. Open up one of the Cliff Bars. You know, they're kind of exciting, but you put some peanut butter on it. You got more calories, more fat, and just better taste, better things to fuel you through the day. Then you get really crazy. Mac and cheese. It's a common meal in the Boundary Waters. And at home, and you throw a little bit of peanut butter in it, it's the same thing. It just... It makes it much richer, much creamier. It sounds super weird until you do it, and then you email me a big thank you. <laughs> I can't wait to try that one. <laughs> so what about beverages? What do you think about what to drink in the Boundary Waters? Yeah, so I, I bring these little noon tablets. I mean, they're not a sponsor of this show, so you don't have to bring noon, but they're compact electrolytes that add a little bit of flavor to your water. And I think that's good because electrolytes are pretty key on recovering because I think we all get a little bit sore, especially the first few days that we're out there. So it's good for recovery, good to replenish and rehydrate yourself using that. And they add a little bit of flavor and they don't weigh too much and no sugar either. So yeah, little electrolyte packets are nice. Let's talk about gear. All right. One thing jumped out at me from your list here, and this is the topic of the pee bottle. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bu- a bit about the pee bottle. Wh- what are we doing here? The pee bottle is a game changer. I don't I don't know how everyone isn't, you know, buying a bottle of Gatorade and drinking it before their boundary waters trip so they have a pee bottle. Basically, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a bottle that you pee in. This isn't, you don't you use it at night, right? There's like marathon canoe racers that will pee in their canoe. You don't need to do that. But, you know, if you are waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, as I do, a lot of times you're just dreading going out because, you know, there's swarms of bugs. Maybe it's raining. You know, there might be some critter out there. UFOs could be hovering. You don't want to go outside of your tent. So you have a pee bottle. You simply pee in that place it out unzip your tent just a little bit place it outside and you know dispose of it dispose of it in the morning women women can use pee bottles with i'm forgetting the female urination device yes fud yes the fud yep yep so those are those are readily available basically a funnel and you know it's obviously you might want to check with your tent partners especially if you're not close with them (laughs) they're new friends you might you might be like yeah just so you know you know get the green light on that beforehand but yeah pee bottles are just essential for me and this is one thing that i i haven't i've thought about but i haven't i haven't used and on the flip side you know i get up during the night too sometimes to pee and it is like opening that zipper and getting out of that tent and finding your shoes it's such a drag and you don't want to wake anyone up with the zipper but you gotta go you gotta go but i've started to realize that um, as a city dweller that when i get outside that tent that's when you can really appreciate the stars and so you get out 
it's maybe the silver lining. You don't right. really want to get out of the tent, but when you're there, it's the time to realize that the, the Boundary Waters is a dark sky sanctuary and you can see a million bajillion stars. And, and there, at least if you're, you know, you're going to get out and pee, that might be a time mm-hmm. to go embrace that. And who knows, maybe you might even see the Northern Lights. That is true. That is true. So, yeah, if it's a clear night, you know, the pee bottle could hinder you from seeing something really special if you want to get really advanced too i think they even have glow-in-the-dark nalgene bottles <laughs> so yeah right that just seems wrong yeah then it's a question <laughs> if you want to use a nalgene bottle right that's a that's a that's a pricey pee bottle yeah like i said i just get a bottle of juice or something beforehand or bring one from home yeah so if price is no no object uh, you can always look into that mark it very clearly yes right you don't want to be grabbing that for your first swig of the morning for sure so uh, other thoughts about gear i've heard you say that you don't need to have the the best gear to have an amazing adventure in the bwca yeah what do you mean by that and then let's do a little speed round here you know what are five pieces of gear that you would say aren't the best gear that you use in the Boundary Waters and and still have an amazing trip. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think there is an image of the Boundary Waters traveler, the outdoor traveler, and they're just decked out in, you know, $400 raincoat. They got some water waterproof, breathable Gore-Tex pants and, you know, basically exp- expensive gear. And this is what you need to adequately face the elements and truly enjoy nature and that's just that just isn't true when i started i had when i started canoeing and i went on multiple month-long trips i was mostly wearing gear that you can find at thrift stores for you know a few dollars for an article of clothing and you can be perfectly comfortable in that you might not look as good you might not have the nice labels but you can have an amazing time in the boundary waters without breaking the bank and i would say too like gore-tex doesn't always work like i've had gore-tex utterly fail on me if i i've had 400 arteryx jacket just leave me absolutely soaked so just because it costs a lot of money does not mean it's going to give you the protection sometimes you know a 20 frog togs or stern's plastic jacket which is not breathable at all but will keep you completely dry and is all you need in, in a downpour so I just really want to impress that on people that you don't need the best gear to have the best trip. So, where can, what what are some what are some options out there? Okay, let's start with socks. If you go to an outdoor gear store, outdoor shop, you're probably horrified that there's such a thing as thirty dollars socks, but evidently there's they there are. You can go to Army Surplus stores. That's a great resource to get some wool cotton blend socks that are very durable, keep your feet pretty pretty dry, fit well. Again, a couple dollars. Thrift stores like Savers are a great place to find clothing such as pants, whether it's nylon wool blend, wool cotton. You know, if they're blended, that works pretty well. You don't want just a straight cotton pants, but a wool blend works very nicely. You know, you rummage through, through the racks and pretty easy to find. Same goes with shirts. I think most of my trail shirts, as I call them, are nylon cotton blend that I would get at thrift stores. Thrift stores They work absolutely fabulously. Couldn't recommend them more. Four, I think, so we got sock, one socks, two pants, three, three shirts, four, you know, 
fleece or warm clothing, 100, it's amazing how many 100% wool shirts you can find at thrift stores. Again, very cheap. So that's like covering your, your basis right there. And then let's all remember Kevlar canoes are, <laughs> they are not the traditional style of canoes. People have been falling in love with the boundary waters and have become addicted to canoeing using 100 pound cedar canvas canoes, 80 pound, pound aluminum Grumman's, 70 pound Royal X. If you don't have three to $4,000 to spend on a Kevlar canoe and you find a $500 one on Craigslist that's an aluminum canoe, I mean, that thing's gonna last you decades if you take care of it right. It'll be a bit heavy but you will get an amazing amount of enjoyment out of it. So I don't want, don't want price to prohibit or, you know, be a barrier for people to get into the boundary waters. You know, I love a lot of, I guess you call it high tech outdoor brands, but they're not necessarily needed. What about footwear? Now I know this is a hot topic because people go wet foot or dry foot. Yeah. What do you use? Yeah, so this is a, I this is a topic that I've given up on. I don't think <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as good boundary as the ideal boundary waters shoe. And I know many people disagree with me. There's lots of good options out there, but I mean the problem is one. I am a absolute absolute proponent of wet footing. Like, don't be the person in your crew who's like, bring bring the canoe up a little bit further. Can you do a little bit to the left? Okay, I got to balance on the gunnels. Like, I just got to get on that one rock. Like, just get your feet wet. Get your feet wet. So the- I've been more of a dry footer throughout my life. Oh, and and I, if you don't guy. have to, you can just kind of step out on a rock. And then if it's cold out, you're not sitting there in cold, wet socks all day. That being said, I tried wet footing last year. I just like, just on the first port, just, just do it. Yeah. Just to go right in, and yeah, it worked out. You're right. You might as well just bite the bullet and uh, save the canoe, save the wear and tear, save the trouble, yep. and just get it over with, and then have a pair to change into when you oh, get to yeah. camp. Yeah, have, have, have a camp pair. So some people do just like socks and chacos. I, I don't like that because I definitely need ankle support. A few years ago, I went on a trip, and I had some nice like kind of trail running shoes, sneakers, kind of hybrid I didn't twist my ankle where it was an injury, but I, you know, landed on it wrong like three or four times enough, not just like, whoa, that was close three or four times and saying like, okay, I need a high heel when I do this again. So that was an experiment that I'm not going to repeat. So I recommend high heel boots. Wait, did I, not high heels. Do not bring high heels into the boundary waters. High ankle boots. Yeah. You know, eight (laughs) inches or so. (laughs) And, you know, an affordable way to do this is you go, is to get work boots that are all leather takes a little bit of work but in the weeks before you go to the boundary waters make sure you you put about a can of mink oil in them and that will make sure that they remain supple when they get wet and then dry out Uh, you know if you don't put the mink oil then they'll dry out and be rock hard and you know that's that's a situation you don't want to be in but you know you can maybe 30 40 dollars get a good pair of work boots not not steel toe Again, all leather, make sure that they don't have like a plastic coating on them, which some of them do. And those will generally last you quite quite a long time. I think that's a very effective, affordable way. I think above all, just making sure you have that ankle support. Because when it comes down to it, right, there's comfort. Do they drain? How good are they? I mean, number one, you just want to make sure that they protect your body and provide adequate yeah, protection to those ankles from rolling. 
yeah, you don't need to spend a ton of money on gear to, to have a great Boundary Waters trip. And one piece of gear that you mentioned before that can be really useful is a bandana. Another speed round. What are the top five ways to use a bandana in the Boundary Waters? All right, bandana. I love the bandana. So simple, so often overlooked though. One, that sun comes up early. So if you're not taking my advice and getting started early and want to sleep in, which I get, you know, use it to put over your eyes in the morning because... Oh, for sleep. Yeah, for sleep. Because if you don't want to wake up with the sun, which, you know, can be at 5, 5 a.m. Tent um, can light right up. Yeah, exactly. So that's good. It's good for sleep. Two, when filtering water, if you have one of those old-fashioned pumps and, you know, maybe you're only able to get water from kind of a murky sediment-filled area, you put that over it to kind of help pre-filter so you don't clog it. That can also work if you use... You know, I use one of those UV lights to kill the bacteria. It doesn't do anything for filtering water, but if I put, if I take, you know, one container full of sediment, sedimenty, dirty water, and then pour that into another water and pour it through a bandana, that kind of filters it that way. Oh, good idea. Yeah, and then three, you know, during the day, putting it around your neck adds some additional sun protection because, I mean, that... It, even with sunscreen, I mean that's that's just where you burn up real easily. Additionally, it works as a as a bit of a, a sweatband around your head and makes you look super cool yeah. as well, which is important, of course, for the gram. And then number number four, right, just a great dish rag to, to dry things out, out a bit. And uh, especially if it's got your sweaty sweat on it. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> You gotta have that sweaty rag to dry out those dishes and, you know, laugh, laugh a little bit. Also works well as a plate, if you will, during lunch. Oh, sure. You could spread yeah. out on top of there versus getting in the dirt. Right. Like a place mat. Kind like of. a place mat, yeah. yeah. Well, and then also it has first aid applications. So if you oh, course, had, yeah. if you got a cut or a big cut or something, or, you know, even in like a total emergency tourniquet, you could use that bandana as a first aid. Yeah. Ideally, you have some, you know, sterile gauze with you, but yeah, in case of emergency, it can help help in creating a sling or, like you said, yeah, tourniquet if worse comes to worse. That suggestion for the water filter is is great because I was on a trip once where we had a, a pump where the filter was already getting kind of clogged, and we had a person who was just so intent on drinking water constantly. Uh-huh. It was a fairly large group, so I just remember we were pumping constantly the entire trip and yeah. and as we went the the filter got more and more clogged throughout the whole time until finally the handle broke off of the of the pump because somebody pumped too hard and it broke the handle and so we had a backup pump luckily for water but life has gotten so much simpler uh-huh. since i added a gravity filter into the setup after that where you can just kind of dip a, a, a bag in the water and hang it up on a tree and then it just flows through right. gravity through the filter into the other bag. And if it gets clogged, you can back flush it with clean water, ideally, yeah. but then then it should should be flowing again. And that, to me, was was a game changer. It's just not having to pump like we did that one trip and, and just to kind of have that bag 
And then related to that, one of my favorite pieces of equipment is a water bag that I got at REI a bunch of years ago. And it just, you fill it up with a gallon of water. And so after I run it through the gravity filter, you just have a bag that you can, has a strap on it. You can just hang it up on a tree and then just walk up to it every time you want to fill up your Nalgene or you know, put it on your toothbrush or fill up for coffee in the morning and it's just always there for you and then you just have to replenish it every once in a while. So that's one of my kind of just low budget but just kind of makes the trip that much better um, pieces of gear. Do you have any favorite piece of gear? Favorite piece of gear? I don't know if I have some some of the my favorite piece of gears are like, well, yeah, you just need that for a canoe trip. But I, I think, you know, as far as niceties that people might not always think of i like to i like to talk about my little list that i have and those involve hard candy yeah tell me about the niceties that you that that just kind of those little teeny things that just make the trip that much better yeah yeah little the little things include hard candy so like jolly ranchers werther's uh there's this there's type of italian anise candy that i just love Anything with aniseed is great for me. I, so I, I like bringing those. It's just nice to have while you're in the canoe or afterwards, a little little bit of a sugar bump. And then there's nice things to do once you get into camp, a little rituals for going to bed. I like like to get some gold bond on, on the feet at the end of the day. Never do that at home, but it's great at the end of the day. Some talcum powder, tiger balm for the mu- muscle sores, and a friend of mine introduced this to me, like going to bed. I just put some on my cheeks, and I don't know why exactly that is. Maybe it's something about the aroma of this muscle relaxer that that is very calming and peaceful. So a little bit bit of tiger balm, you know. And then there's obviously the the big ticket items that I don't think I'm, you know, not going to break any ground by revealing to you. But you know, books, journals, things like that 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 you enjoy while you're up in the boundary waters and that can enhance an experience. I like to just throw in a magazine like National Geographic or something for the hammock. You know, if it gets trash, you know, yeah. it's not the end of the world, even though people used to kind of hold on to them. Like, like there was a lot of value to the National Geographic, oh, yeah. but if it gets a little wet and it gets a little crumpled, no big deal. Right. But, uh, and there are articles, you know, that are about nature and you're reading about yeah. nature and science when you're in a place like the boundary waters just kind of fits. So I like to, to throw in that National Geographic versus bringing a book that I might not get to sure, sure. <laughs> or the journal that you bring and then you never write it. <laughs> right. Right. You <laughs> know, just, ri- just end up writing about the weather. Well, these are all great suggestions and gear and things that you can do kind of in camp. I wanted to ask you just just also about one other thing that stood out to me on your list, which are some challenges that you can do to spice up your BWCA trip. So this might be for the seasoned paddler who's been a number of times, but they're kind of, you know, you kind of do the same old things. What kind of things can you do to kind of make your trip a little interesting or do something, do something a little different? Yeah. So I think a couple of suggestions that, you know, people seem to find a lot of value in is one, try night paddle. Night paddles are, it's, it's just a completely different way of experiencing the boundary waters and seeing where you are it's 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 hard to describe which is why i suggest people do it because there is kind of this element of unknown right you're in the dark and you're paddling so before you set off in the night though there's there's a few ways to do it i think one way if you're 
paddling in the sun if it's during the summertime again campsites are scarce and you don't want to be looking for a campsite at midnight is you kind of do you you paddle out from where you're staying now be sure you know where you are on the map of course because you don't want to get lost you know if someone stays back in the campsite maybe keeps keeps a lantern on or keeps the fire burning obviously attended that 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 can help but you can paddle around for an hour or two stars aurora borealis just seeing that land bathed in moonlight is something else so that's one way of doing it maybe if you're in early season or late season kind of in the in the off season away from you know the permit time then you can actually travel during 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 the night and be reasonably assured that you'll find a campsite that's best done during a full moon doesn't have to be during a full moon but you know half size or larger and a clear night really really helps just with navigation and seeing where you're going so try it try out a night paddle again incredible experience and then a challenge that i urge people to do which requires a lot of coordination and planning is called a voyager morning now you might sense there's a bit of a theme here with my insistence that you get moving in the morning but this is basically a challenge to wake up break camp eat breakfast clean all the dishes get in the canoe start paddling in one hour so that means that the alarm goes goes off say it's six o'clock sound the alarm everyone starts moving and in the coordination part comes in where you know yeah you have to have certain people as a designated people who are going to take down the tent people who are going to start breakfast quickly then once the tents are down once we eat breakfast someone's cleaning the pots other people are packing the gear you're ready to put the clean pots right on top of everything sweep camp get out on the water so it's especially if you do it through building a fire it takes a lot of planning the night before, right? You get all the, you, you get everything set up. So you just have to strike a match, light the fire. You have your food, your your pots and pans ready ready to go. Everyone knows what they're doing, and uh, yeah, it's a fun it's a fun hectic str- scramble to get on the water in an hour. Seems like a good way to kind of build some team chemistry or spirit with your camping group. Too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That sounds really fun. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing some of these tips from your experience. And for those who are interested in more tips and more suggestions, we have all kinds of resources on our website, friends-bwca.org, for planning a trip, tying knots, which we didn't get into because it's a little hard to demonstrate hard the to audio. Demonstrate. Then over, under, and uh-huh. around. Gotta go out and, the rabbit's hole. Yep. Yep. And then planning a trip, permits, even Quetico trips have recently been added to our website. So you can find out some suggestions for doing the Quetico. So thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you and check out those resources on our website. Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be covering a wide range of recreational topics this season, from hiking trails to tips and tricks, and we'll meet some great personalities from the BWCA along the way, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Big Red Canoe is a presentation of Friends of the Boundary Waters Wilderness, original music by Surge and the Swell. I'm Dave Meyer, and we'll see you next time on Big Red Canoe. Thanks 
to the dedication of people from across the nation, we've made incredible victories in the fight against copper sulfide mining. For now, we've stopped this polluting industry from putting a shovel in the ground. But the threat is still there. That's why we've been working to pass a prove-it-first bill in Minnesota. The law is simple. Before a copper sulfide mine in Minnesota can be permitted, the prove-it-first law would require independent scientific proof that just one copper sulfide mine has operated in the United States for at least 10 years without causing pollution, and that one mine has been closed for at least 10 years without polluting. It's common sense. Let's protect our clean water. Let's pass the Prove It First bill.